Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we're talking with the very talented writer, Tia Williams. Now, Tia is truly a writer in every sense of the word. She's been a beauty editor for magazines like Elle, Glamour, Essence, Lucky, and Teen People, and she's currently the editorial director at Estee Lauder. She's also written five critically lauded novels, including The Beauty of Color and the African-American literary award-winning novel, The Perfect Find, the adaptation of which friend of the show Gabrielle Union is set to produce and star in. Tia's sixth and latest novel is called Seven Days in June, which is a very sexy, very fun romance novel exploring the nature of true love, as well as the sometimes complicated dynamics between mothers and daughters. It was an instant New York Times bestseller when it came out in June and has received tons of acclaim, including being named a Reese Witherspoon's book club pick. And I can see why, because it's on my book list, too. We've been talking about romance novels a lot lately here on It's Lit, so it was such a joy to finally get to really dig into one with Tia and her gorgeous new novel. We talked about how the inspiration for the story came to her, her approach to writing sex scenes, and how she musters the discipline she has to not only finish these wonderful books, but also do her regular nine to five job on top of it. Well, that and being a wife and mother. It was a great conversation and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And with that, I give you Tia Williams. Tia, welcome to It's Lit. Yay! Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. Uh, I am a longtime fan, and I should, full disclosure, tell our listeners that Tia and I have a lot of mutual friends, so we've been in each other's orbit for a while. We met probably, like, we think about, what, 15 years ago we, we initially met? It had met. to have been. Yeah. Yes, but we have not been in touch. I, I do watch you in these social media streets, and I have read your books. I have a copy <laughs> of It Chicks still on my bookshelves. So oh my gosh. I do, I do, I do. So I've been watching you for a minute, not to mention the fact that, you know, you are a former beauty editor. I am a current beauty editor. So we we have parallel lives in that way. Um, Absolutely. And we're going to dig into your latest book. This is your fifth, I believe. Uh, yeah. Seven Days in June, which has gotten a lot of acclaim, ma'am. This is part of Reese's Book Club. It is, mm-hmm. and for good reason. This is this is this is a fun read, and we are going to get into it. But we do have a little ritual to start each episode of the Root Presents It's Lit. We uh, pride ourselves on being a podcast about black writers, black authors, black thinkers, and therefore we like to ask all of our guests: Is there a book or books that you found uh, mind blowing, groundbreaking, inspiring? in terms of your own journey as a writer? I wish this wasn't an answer that was given so often so I could sound very, you know, unique and off the beaten path. But honestly, Zora Neale Hurston, there I for watching God. When I read that, like, I didn't know language could be manipulated in that way. I didn't know that it could be turned into magic in that way. And what she was doing with dialect and colloquial language, you know, at the time in the 20s was looked down upon because Black people were reminded of minstrel acts. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, the way we spoke back then was considered to be, you know, you sound dumb, you sound uneducated, it's for comedic purposes. But she was kind of reclaiming our dialogue. And I just... One of my favorite things to do is to write 
conversations, right? Dialogues. I love people talking. I love the way we talk. I love picking up regional differences, generational differences, like in, in conversations. So yeah, I, she was, she's amazingly inspiring to me. Well, you know, I think the classics are classics for a reason. And I also think we can never give Zora too many flowers because she didn't yeah. get them in life, right? None. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so none. I never have a problem with that answer because I think it's, it's, I, I think it speaks to the fact that we have our own canon, really. Mm, and I think yeah. also, you know, I mean, additionally, I think you, you pointed out something really well there about, um, dialect that, you know, in some respects, might one might argue that during the Harlem Renaissance, some people, I guess today we'd say too soon after slavery, you know, to to right, explore that right. dialect, that it was tri- probably triggering for some people. But now aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that we have that, you know, to refer to for ourselves? So I think that's mm-hmm. a brilliant answer. I have, I have, you know, we have heard that answer before. I'm always overjoyed to hear the reasons people give that answer. Um mm. But again, Zora's in the canon. She belongs there. But let's get into your writing. And I love that you talked about conversations because there are so many in this book and so many good ones. And well, first of all, you set this book in my old neighborhood of Park Slope, Brooklyn. So <laughs> it was instantly familiar to me. Oh. Um, and and yeah. as I noted, we we have run in the same circles for a while. So, you know, some of these personalities, I was like, you know, if you don't know these people, you still know these people. You know, yeah. <laughs> in some of your big scenes with some of these people, like one of my favorite scenes in this book, and I, I think I can tell this one without spoiling anything for anybody, is you have a party scene and mm-hmm. you kind of, you let the reader kind of flit around the room and overhear these conversations. And I think it's so fun because, you know, anybody who's been to a party, anybody who's definitely been to a party with the black elite, I put that, you can't, our listeners can't see the air quotes I'm making, but the black elite. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, you know, right, right. knows these the conversations. The, the, we, we are still out here, aren't we? Um, yeah. yeah, it's familiar. Mm-hmm. So I want to know, you know, just starting at the very beginning, how this book came about for you. Well, so Seven Days in June is about two famous writers in totally different genres who meet at a literary event at the Brooklyn Museum and sparks fly, but then unbeknownst to everyone at the event, they actually know each other. They're not strangers. They spent seven days, you know, together as teens. It was very torrid and romantic. And then they went their separate ways and never spoke again. But we find out that they've been communicating to each other through their books over the past 15 years. So now they're in each other's lives as adults. Like, what do we do? And so I got that idea when I was watching, well, re-watching for the millionth time. It's one of my comfort movies, um, Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. And I got to the end and I don't know why I've never had this thought, but I was like, what if Romeo and Juliet hadn't died at the end? You know, they're like 15 years old. Like, what if, you know, they had this like, lust-filled, love-struck moment together and then didn't speak again and then ran into each other like as 32-year-olds. Like, do soulmates have an expiration date? And, you know, every writing professor will tell you to begin a novel with a question so you have something to answer. So that was like the question I had. Does, you know, does true love expire? And so that that's what I was exploring with like, Eva and Shane, you know, and the flashbacks back to their teen 
love versus what's happening in present time with their adult situation. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting too because uh, you know you have a line there that I I really related to where you talk about I, I'm going to be paraphrasing, but you basically talk about adults being like we're just tall toddlers, like we're just <laughs> like you know, yeah. like the idea of adulthood is kind of an illusion that you know we're all like. I actually feel still very connected to my adolescent brain. I don't know what that says about my maturity level, but I, the, the, yeah. those feelings, what you talk about and, and the, and I think you capture so much of it, the instant friendships, right? You know, the, the instant kinships mm-hmm. that we have with people, particularly at that age where you like latch onto somebody really quickly, like whether it's, you know, oh gosh, I, I want to say I read something else recently where they were talking about the campitis, you know, where you would go to like summer camp, you'd have a best friend within like 24 ah. hours and like, <laughs> you know. And there's yes, there's yeah. some element of that here with even Shane. And also, you know, the idea of what maturity looks like, because these are both right. people who had to grow up with their damage, per se, their damage that kind of bonded them in the first place. Mm-hmm. And you write about that really, I mean, it's a, you know, I, there's a few words I would use to describe this novel. Um, one of which, for some reason, the first one is charming. It is charming. It charmed me, which I guess is... Uh, not so much about like etiquette as it is about uh, maybe a little more evocative of of kind of the more witchy aspects of of the piece. Um, oh, you know, okay. I felt I, I felt that. enchanted uh, enchanted by this this love story. Um, okay, but it was also raw, like really raw, <laughs> you know, in in many yeah. aspects. Um, and what were you, you know, without probing too deeply, what were you drawing upon for for some of that, some of the really deep dysfunction that these characters, each of these characters has experienced. Right. Um, I feel like, so I grew up in the eighties and Mm -hmm. all of the like teen high school content was so, you know, squeaky clean and like, who's going to take me to the prom and like, you know, Oh no, I have a pimple. And being a teenager is probably the most complicated time of your entire life. Absolutely. It's the hardest. No one would go back. I know so few people that had, you know, a John Hughes sort of teenage experience or even the house party experience, you know, like I didn't really go to party. I, you know, I don't know. I was a complicated moody teen. I had chronic pain. Mm -hmm. I felt super misunderstood. I had an amazing family, which is something that Eva and Shane don't have. But I just wanted to explore how tough it can get for teens. And also, if you do see any sort of content, TV, film, books about traumatized teenagers, they're always white until Mm -hmm. we get to euphoria, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. recently. But it's like, if Black people are struggling with anything, it's race related. Mm -hmm. Your, you know, our trauma is only oppression trauma. Like black girls can't have an eating disorder. You know, black kids don't self-harm. Like it, it's never that, like that seems to be like a, a suburban white problem. Like if you believe media. So I, I wanted to get into some of those areas because our kids go through the same things, you know, and also What's notable about Eva and Shane as teenagers in the flashback portions of the book is that 
they don't have families. And right. so when they meet each other and it's this instant connection, that's how big it feels to them. They're each other's family now, like instantly. And it drives sort of this wild passion that they have because they literally have nothing else. They have no friends. They have nothing. So it just heightens the connection they have. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Well, I felt really connected to this book as well. You know, in addition to you setting it in a neighborhood that I knew really well, <laughs> setting much of it, I should say. Um, you know, there's another relationship here other than even Shane that for me as the only child of a mother who has been single most of my life, I really sat with me in a, in a really sweet spot, this, this relationship between Eva and her daughter, Audrey. And I know that you are also the mother of a daughter. <laughs> I am. And, and I know that I, I read your acknowledgments and I, I know that she, she inspired part of Audrey, I believe. Um, yes. Why was it so important to, cause I mean, I have to say, I think that relationship was as, as well fleshed out as the even Shane relationship. And you don't always get that, you know, kids often become kind of like these ancillary characters, mm-hmm. but she was also a very central character here. And why was that important to you? So I was a single mom of a daughter for 10 years. Oddly, halfway through writing this book, like I swiped right on my now husband. But when I first started writing it, like I was in Eva's position totally. So, you know, black Brooklyn writer, single mother of a 12 year old, you know, chronic invisible illness, novelist, all all of that. Like the skeleton of who Eva is, is who I am. And I got divorced from my daughter's dad when she was 11 months old. So it was really, and we co-parent, like I'm, I can look out the window, like his brownstone is right out here. Like she walks back and forth. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) But like when she's with me, it, it, it was, it was only us. And like, you get into this thing as like a single mom and a daughter where you're in this bubble of inside jokes and rituals and weirdness and your own language and just stuff that you only understand. And in a strange way, you almost become contemporaries, like, which is why Audrey is so precocious because she's been hanging around with her mom and her mom's 40 year old friend. And the same thing with my daughter, like, and it made her, I mean, granted, she doesn't have like a therapy side hustle like Audrey does in the book, but like, (laughs) She is, you know, more often than not the most insightful person in the room. So like she'd be seven and I'd be hanging out with, you know, a girlfriend in the living room and she'd come out and be like, yeah, um, 
Auntie Charlotte, I heard you use the word hopeless. Like that's an interesting choice of words. I mean, do you really feel without hope? And it's like, you're <laughs> seven years old. You don't know what you're talking about, you know? Um, so I was definitely inspired like by her and our like dynamic. And it was interesting because as Shane comes into the picture and like penetrates their mommy daughter bubble, the same thing was happening to me in my life where I was, I met this, this man and had to figure out how to bring him into our dynamic and what that would be like. And, you know, so the fiction was reflecting the reality. I mean, I love that. And, and I am a self-admitted Audrey. I, I was that precocious child, even down mm. to the therapy side hustle. I, I actually had one, although I didn't make money off of it. I needed, I did not monetize that. So <laughs> I got to think about that moving forward. But, uh, <laughs> I was definitely, yeah. I was definitely a child psychologist, but literally a child. Um, <laughs> right, right. So I, I loved, I loved that dynamic. I love that whole illustration, but I, we're going to pivot a little bit because, um, and I, I hope this is okay, but can we talk about sex? I, let's I need talk to, about I, sex. Let's talk about sex because there are some, there are some scenes. <laughs> there yes. are some scenes in this book. And I have to say, I think that, you know, I think, first of all, we've been talking about romance a lot on the podcast lately. We had um, Stacey Abrams on, who we know uh, oh, had, yeah. you know, has written several kind of romance thrillers. I mean, a series of them. And she so was many. lobbying yeah. for romance and talking about how we devalue, particularly Black totally. love stories. We devalue them. But then we also had uh, a Kweke Mezi on recently who also said they've been reading a ton of romance lately. Like that was just something that they felt that they needed. And I, I am also here yeah. to lobby for the romance novel. And I'm here to lobby for yours because I feel like this hits the spot, <laughs> so mm, to speak. Yeah, It hits the spot. It hits the spot that combines both the like literary and the lusty. But I think like writing sex is not easy. It is not easy. Even if you're really good at at sex. I think even if you're good at sex, it's not easy to right. write sex. <laughs> Can you like talk about yeah, what one that... has nothing to do with the other? It really doesn't. Yeah. It really, it really mm -hmm. does not. But could you tell me a little bit about like how that process has evolved for you? Cause you did it really well here. I Thank won't tell you, you how well, but you did it well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this makes my day. Um, yeah, I love writing sex scenes. It's very cathartic to me. It's, self-care it it's is like my meditation <laughs> I used to do it like in high school like if I was bored in class I would just be like you know right in my trapper keeper like a kissing scene I, my mom was obsessed with romance novels growing up and so I, she would have like a stack in the bathroom by the tub and you know I would go in there and take one of her books and they would always open right up to the sex scene because obviously that's what she was you know focusing <laughs> and uh, and I just thought they were so interesting that how could these words take you to the same place that like visuals would mm -hmm. like they give you porny feelings mm -hmm. you know but but deeper because if you're writing them you know a sex scene shouldn't exist in a book like in a vacuum you're bringing the characters into them that you're emotionally invested in their characteristics, their personalities, it should propel the plot forward, you know? So 
you know, it should reveal something about the character to make you feel closer to the character. It should surprise you about the characters. And so the takeaway isn't just the sex. It's also like finding out more about these people that you're really invested in. And so that heightens it completely. And that's what makes it a little different than erotica because erotica is just the sex. So yeah, I just, I really enjoy it. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say like, for those people who have not read this book yet, which I highly recommend, it's not that there's a lot of sex scenes. That's the interesting part. There's not a ton of sex scenes. Here. No. It's not, this is not gratuitous. It's not, you know, and as you said, it does not exist in a vacuum. It's very contextual and I, I think very necessary. And you're, and I, what I love the most is that you actually build the same sense of urgency in the reader that you're building in the characters. Like we are all waiting for a chapter. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> right (laughs) when are they going to do this when are they going to do it um but i mean another thing that you do here that i think is so effective and i think this is look i'm i will be the first to admit i am a person who loves love i love it i love the feeling i love the rush i love that whole like beginning period that you never get back when you first like meet somebody and you're like right and what you give us here is that Plus something else that I think anybody who loves love is familiar with, which is the what if, right? The huge what if. Mm. I mean, you say you started this book with a what if, and I would say that you evoke that same feeling in the reader because anybody who's ever fallen in love or had that thing that didn't work out or a series of things that didn't work out, Mm -hmm. there is always at least one of those people who you kind of have that what if with, right? That kind of like, hmm, what if things had gone right instead of left or what if right <laughs> you know right what if i had been ready what if i had been or if they had been ready or whatever you know and i you know i know you started with romeo and juliet but were you thinking a lot about that that what if question in the in the more personal context or i guess in the broader context when you were writing this because i feel like that's so relatable yeah i think we all have that person that got away you know and we wonder what would happen if they came back or you Mm -hmm. came back. Like, Mm -hmm. would you, would you two remember things the same way? You know, that was a big one for me because I find that past boyfriends that I've had and people that I've dated, it's like, we really don't remember things the same way. No, you have two different versions of events. It's like, you know, as they say, there's like your version, their version and the truth, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So like, how do you reconcile that? And, um, what would you be wearing? Like, what would you say? Would you finally say all the things you wanted to say? And would the same chemistry be there? And if it is, what do you do with it? You know? Right. Um, And so often thing, you know, relationships don't work out because of timing. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing when it's like, okay, we broke up because you cheated on me. We broke up because you were crazy. Like, you know, we broke up because you stalked me like things that are like a hard no. But if you broke up just because, not because there wasn't love there, but because it just was the wrong time, that's very seductive, you mm-hmm. know, because what if now is the right time? Right. And so I just think that's really relatable. We all have that. Like you get to a certain age and you have like the line forms to the left of the boyfriends or girlfriends, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're sort of wondering about or the ones that like DM you at three in the morning and you're like, oh, hello again, you know. Uh, 
<laughs> I agree. <laughs> Definitely agree. That's hilarious. The large forms to the left. I love that. That's really fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do want to talk about, you know, kind of growing into things though, too, because, you know, we talk to a lot of first time authors on this show. Um, I mean, some, some mm. best selling authors who have been at this for years and years, some veteran authors, but a lot of people who have had tremendous success out the gate as writers. And you have been at this. For a long time with success, yeah. uh, you know, obviously enough success to keep going. I mean, I know that your last novel is being adapted by Netflix into an on-screen event starring Gabrielle Union. So congratulations on that. I know that Seven Days in June has already been optioned as well. So I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing, to seeing how that casting works out. Um, yeah. But can you talk a little bit about just the process of of sticking with it. Cause I mean, you're, you're doing this while raising a daughter while holding down jobs. Cause I, it should also be noted. You are still, you still have a job job, right? <laughs> like you're still, um, I have a job job. Yeah, yeah. You're an editorial director at Estee Lauder, you know, like, yeah. And you've been a journalist, you know, you were journalist for many years while you were also doing this. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what that's like? Cause I think people have this idea of novelists that like, People are just able to like shut themselves in their rooms and just like write, write, write. And, you know, that's it. <laughs> you know, when you're literally holding up a whole world and, and doing all the things that everybody else is doing at the same time. And you've been doing this for well over a decade. Yeah. And most authors do. Like you just yeah. don't make enough money to be able to sit in a room and, and, you know, devote all your time to writing, though that would be the dream. But yeah. Um, it's funny, like when I'm asked about process or like how I balance it all, I struggle with that answer because I do manage to do it, but it is not healthy and not recommended. <laughs> like the way <laughs> I do it. Um, yeah, it's just so I I have chronic migraines. So I have a migraine every day. Mm. And it's like, you know, it, it ranges from a manageable annoyance to, okay, it's time to go to the hospital. So I don't know. And I never really know what the day is going to bring. So I can't have a steady schedule because, you know, on most days, it's all I can do to do my nine to five and then be a mom after work. So really what I do, you know, the days that I feel good enough, which would be a pain on the pain scale from one to 10, it would be like five and below. I need to write and I need to write as long as I can, because I don't know when that day is coming back. Like when the next day will be that I feel good enough to do it. So on those days where I'm feeling pretty good, like when my daughter goes to bed, I'll write from like nine or 10 to two or three in the morning. And then when, you know, the other thing, when I'm writing a novel, like my weekends are for writing. So I don't really see friends. I don't really, you know, it's a big sacrifice. The thing is like, if you're going to do this, the discipline piece of it is so important because there's always something more fun, more exciting, more sexy, more relaxing to do than to write. Writing is a fucking drag. It's hard. <laughs> it's you and a blank screen, like trying to create a world. It's very isolating and it's scary. So you really have to be like the toughest boss you've ever had, but for yourself. And for a lot of people, that's the piece of it that they, that's just too challenging. Like that's, that's the, the challenge, like making yourself do this thing. 
and remembering the why as you as you kind of open this with like what what is the why here why am i why am i doing this why do i need to get the story out why <laughs> you know right yeah well i think you know there's a first of all i think that's an excellent answer and i don't know that any of our um I mean, we've had, we have, we've had some great advice given on this podcast in the past, but I think that that was the most, uh, down to earth and, and, and really direct advice that I've heard from a writer, a successful, prolific writer. And you may not feel prolific, mm-hmm. but I'm like, you've completed five books. I think you're prolific. <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, you know, I think, I think that's the most direct advice that I've heard. And, and I, I really love that. Um, I'm also, you know, really interested in romance as a genre, you know, because you have Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, we touched on this earlier, but you have obviously really, you have, you have a talent for this particular thing. And I don't know that, I don't know that we get enough of the, I wouldn't call this a rom-com. This is not that it kind of, it has comedic moments, but it (laughs) kind of touches on a lot of things, but right, this is in a tradition of books that people, you know, the few that we have, we revere, you know, like your, your, your Terry McMillan, you know, like you're waiting to exhale moments, like those kind of like iconic black moments. But I would also say this stands really, really solidly as literature in terms of how you develop mm-hmm. the story, the language, the, the character development, all of those things. And I think you're, you, I don't doubt that you have a lot of readers who also thank you for incorporating your own invisible disability into your main character. Cause that's also something we don't talk about a lot. Right. So, you know, thank you for, for being so transparent about that. Cause I don't think people totally get that all the time either, but why, what argument would you make for romance as a genre? Um, I think we need the escapism. I think black love isn't given enough space and we really need to see ourselves happy. <laughs> you know, um, I'm all for, you know, I'm all for books about slavery, you know, books about race in America, books about our history, all of that. I'm, I'm yes, but we need everything. And I feel like seeing black people loving each other, it just humanizes us. And it reminds us, you know, like, sometimes you get into a place with, with black media where it's like, okay, are we just symbols of oppression? You know, did we have to die at the end? Like the same thing with like a lot of queer content. It's like somebody has to die, (laughs) you know, like you can have a little bit of love and, and, and have a little bit of happiness, but like someone's going to die or something's going to be tragic. And why does it have to be like that? Like, I think it's so important for us and for everyone else to see us thriving and loving and having great sex and feeling good (laughs) about ourselves and not coming from a place of needing to be healed, like coming from a place of, I already know I'm dope. So like, what's next? You know, I, I think that's just as important and just as revolutionary as everything else. I, I agree with you. And at the risk of, uh, you know, putting too much pressure on you, particularly understanding how your writing process works now, what is next? Are you, are you already on to the next thing? Or are you just enjoying this moment with this book? Oh, girl, I wish I could just enjoy this moment. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the way that, <laughs> that like my brain is set up. 
So I'm already on to the next thing. And I would love to talk about it, but I haven't even properly discussed it with my agent. So it is, it is um, fun. We have a lot of authors on here yeah. who are like, I'm on to the next thing, but I do not discuss. And I know that Eva does yeah. not discuss her next book. Your main character does not discuss her next book. So we're going to, we're going to wait for that to happen, but I will be waiting uh, with bated breath because I really enjoyed seven days in June and I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh. So thank you for coming on and reuniting thank with you. me today. <laughs> Yes, this was such a pleasure. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really does help us out. And we appreciate your feedback so much. Now, if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A. And at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. What I'm starting to dig into is Beasts of Prey by Ayana Gray. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Like, I'm not a fantasy reader. I'm not. Um, Which is weird because, you know, I I grew up on sci-fi with my dad and, you know, reading, you know, The Lion, The Witch, and The Word of That's fantasy, right? (laughs) And, And I love Game of Thrones. But somehow, as a genre, I just haven't really, like, dug in. So it's really cool to be getting into this now because we have so many amazing Black authors in this space who are doing things that really push our boundaries of what Black identity is. And, you know, recently we spoke with Tia Williams, who was talking about how we need to see ourselves in love. We need to see ourselves happy. We need to see ourselves joyful. And she was talking about Black romance novels, but I would say the same is true of Black fantasy. We need to see ourselves in other worlds that are bigger than this one, to feel expansive, to see ourselves as magical creatures who are not necessarily quote unquote magical Negroes. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm digging into that and hopefully we'll be talking to Ayana soon about what it means to her. But in the meantime, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next week. Until then, keep it lit.